turn in your Bibles to the uh, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. We'll be reading uh, verses 32 through 44. Matthew 24, 32 records, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Surely I say to this, this generation by no means will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Let us pray. Dear our Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for us coming together here to worship, Lord. We just thank you for uh, your grace, your mercy for us this morning. We would just um, ask that you would uh, give each one of us a mind to worship, Lord. We just ask that you would remove every thought and intention that might be a hindrance aside, so that we may worship you as you intend in spirit and in truth. We just ask that you'll be with one that's going to deliver the message this morning, Lord, that it will be for the upbuilding of your kingdom, that it would um, reach our hearts, Lord, that it would uh, convict us of sin, that it would draw us closer to you in the spirit, that it would allow us to uh, be encouraged, but also to be challenged, that ultimately all of us would come away if we are Christians in greater knowledge of you. And if there's anyone here that does not know you, I pray that, that they would hear this gospel and that they would be converted and healed and turned from their sin to life, or that they would be born to the family of God this day. We would just ask that you would allow this to happen. We just thank you for your grace and your mercy for us, Lord. We thank you for all things you do for us and those things you withhold from us, Lord, knowing that even in that there is mercy. We just are thankful for, most of all, your son Jesus and what he's given on our behalf. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for his atoning work. We thank you for his priestly act as the one who stands before your throne and pleads our cause. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. We took a little hiatus last week. This week we return back to the to the book of Matthew. And for those of you that are visiting with us, you may or may not know, um, if you've listened to any of the sermons online, um, that we have been uh, taking as our task the last year and a half or so now um, to trek through the book of Mark. We made it to the book of Mark chapter number 13 and um, have in some ways substituted this portion of Scripture for that, not to abandon the book of Mark um, but it seemed uh, wise to take the most extensive account of the three gospel accounts of what we would refer to as the Olivet Discourse. Mark chapter 13, Matthew chapter 24, and Luke chapter 21 all record uh, this same event. Um, our Lord abandons the temple, leaves the temple after pronouncing condemnation upon the nation of Israel, particularly its represented, representative leadership. And then he goes from that place to the Mount of Olives. This is what Matthew teaches us. And upon there, he goes from a public discourse to a private discourse in which he begins to um, preach or declare 
um, uh, this sermon, which in all reality is short, but at the same time is extremely deep in the sense that um, volumes have been written and exhausted um, from a human minds such that we have yet to plumb the uh, entirety of the depths of the passage of this scripture. And no doubt um, it will be uh, boggling our minds and we'll be scratching our heads um, until we see him face to face and he reconciles um, all of the things that we don't understand, particularly um, about this passage and probably a thousand, a thousand more. Um, and we're just simply picking up where we left off a couple of weeks ago, um, verse by verse um, exposition of this. And it is my prayer and desire today to somewhat close it out and get back to the book of Mark in the coming weeks, Mark chapter 14, as I'm extremely excited about preaching um, the death, burial, and resurrection um, of our Lord. It's been a blessing to, to somewhat discourse on this. At the same time, it's been exhausting, and uh, I hope that it's been beneficial um, to you. I know that it has to me. Um, I, I expected more conversation or questions, to be honest with you, as we've come to this text. Maybe you're keeping them to yourselves or you're talking amongst yourselves, um, but feel free to, um, to engage me on this. I know um, <clears throat> that it is a position that I've taken that is not the most common position or the most popular position, uh, but probably the least popular in the day and hour um, in which we're living that many faithful men um, throughout the world today and in, and in generations past have taken different positions. Um, I, I don't necessarily say that the position that I'm taking is the, right, is the only position, but that it is a faithful position. It is a historical position. At one time, it was the predominant position, um, not today, um, but in days former and in days past. So today we will try to close it out as we take <clears throat> the latter portion of this text kind of summarize the position that we have came to uh, from the pulpit and end it as we give a general description of the rest of the discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and in 25. We won't take it verse by verse, of course, uh, but give you kind of a summation of, of the point of that, of that passage and where it goes after that. I encourage you to read it that the Lord may um, provoke your um, your heart. So we pick our reading up in verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that the summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means uh, pass away. And I want to begin with this verse in verse number 34, and then we'll talk about the fig tree um, after. And, and in all reality, as the beginning of this study, probably two months ago, I really wanted to preach this text. <laughs> and in some sense, I think that I did, and I've re-emphasized it throughout the entirety of the discourse. Um, but expositionally, it begins with verse 1, so we begin with verse 1. But in all reality, um, this is probably... In some sense, one of the most, if not the most critical text um, and a portion of Scripture of the entirety of this discourse. It is somewhat um, this portion, this verse, in which the interpretation of the entire passage um, hinges upon. And why? Because um, how you understand this generation 
will determine whether this portion of Scripture is past, whether it's present, or whether it's future. And there's basically three positions that you can take on this portion of Scripture. One, it's past. Not that it's it's past in the sense that Jesus didn't understand or know what He was talking about. It was future at the time of Christ, but that, that it's past in regard to us. It was future to them, but, but past in regard to us. Number two, it's future. This is the most popular position of our day. But the entirety, or at least most of it, um, deals with a future event, um, a tribulation, and a millennial reign and second coming of Christ. The third position is a position that mixes the two. It's both past and present. This is probably the most difficult position to take. Because at some point you have to be able to discern exactly what is past and what is present. And many Christians you'll read throughout or listen to sermons and they don't really know. They have a sense in some sense, or a sense in some way that it is both. Either or even reading Spurgeon on this text. He gets to verse number 29 and he says, uh, up to that point, everything is dealing with the nation of Israel and Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And he gets to verse 29 and he says, something tells me, and this is paraphrasing Spurgeon on his commentary on this text, something tells me that this is both past and future. There's something about it that, that is representative of, of a coming um, kingdom or a coming um, advent of our Lord at the end of the age. And there may, that may be reality. And in some sense, I think that that's true. Um, but to say that with certainty from the text is very difficult. But you can say it with certainty, I think, in this sense, that the day of the Lord um, is different all throughout the Scriptures depending upon what context you're talking about. For example, there was a day of the Lord with Babylon. There was a day of the Lord with Egypt. There was a day of the Lord with Edom. And what it speaks of is the judgment that's coming upon those nations. And that those can be, and probably are, a microcosmic um, display, a type and a shadow, a picture of that great judgment which is to come. And that one thing that we should take away from this portion of Scripture, even if it is past, and primarily I'm applicable to the Jewish people and the Christians of that day, that we should walk away with somewhat of a fear and a terror and an amazement in, at God of what will happen on that final day. that The things that have happened in time and reality under the governing, uh, under the providence of God, the sovereignty of God over the nations and by the hands of men will pale in comparison to the judgment on the last day. And that in that sense, we can say with, I think I can say with certainty um, that, that this is both past and somewhat future. Or it has at least future implications. Um, but what I've tried to commend to you is, is that primarily speaking, that up to this portion of the text, um, it is primarily in the past. Future to them, future to the apostles, future to the disciples, future to the, the, the Jerusalem um, economy, but past to us. Why do I say that? Particularly because of this text. And the... And, and, and the interpretation will often hinge on, again, this text. And it depends upon what you give precedence to. You know, um, but those who believe its future give precedence, particularly to the apocalyptic language in verses 29 through 31. And they say that could not have happened yet. Thus, we have to figure out what is meant by this generation. 
if it is yet to come, then we know that this generation can't be that generation. Thus, we must figure out what this generation is. Or do we take this generation at face value, because I believe at face value, as the disciples heard it, and as a modern-day New Testament Christian or Jew would have read this, they would have understood it as that generation. Then we have to figure out what to do with the apocalyptic language. And I commended to you two weeks ago what uh, my perspective on the apocalyptic language was. That that wasn't speaking of a cataclysmic event in a literal fashion in which um, the sun would actually become dim and the moon would not give its light and so forth. That when we compare Scripture to Scripture, I think it's a, uh, a tenable position and a compelling argument to, say, to, to take Isaiah 13 and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Zechariah and, um, and, and realize that our Lord speaks to His people in apocalyptic language oftentimes to, um, to illustrate the, um, the, the judgment that comes upon, upon nations particularly. That the context throughout Scripture, you find nation after nation after nation in the Old Covenant that God says literally in Isaiah 13 that He will roll them up like a scroll or the heavens like a scroll. Um, that, that, that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. It's almost a direct quote here in Matthew 24 to Isaiah 13. And we know that in that context, it was, it was against the nation of Babylon in which God did turn their lights out. He ended their world. Um, it, it, that, that it speaks of political and national entities that fall in which the entirety of that world and universe is, is totally placed out. That throughout the Old Testament, you do see astrology-type language used um, symbolically or metaphorically or in some way to refer to nations and their power, and that, um, and that God uses deconstruction language as well as construction language um, in, in astrology-type um, symbolic language to speak of the formation of nations, as he did with the nation of Israel, where he speaks of them, where he speaks of of uh, establishing Zion by planting the heavens, and he also uses deconstruction language as saying um, pulling down the stars in a symbolic way. Psalm chapter number eighteen, as David recounts um, God's judgment upon Saul, and he speaks in such a way that he talks about the heavens shaking and smoke coming out of the nostrils of God. And we know that that didn't happen in a one-to-one parallel, but there was something that was cataclysmic that happened, that God intervened on behalf of His people, and He uses such strong language to speak about that, and He uses that type of language. It's, and I'm arguing that that's the same here. This is what he's speaking of. He's speaking in a context that is, is almost identical to the context of those passages in the Old Testament Scriptures of a nation that is apart from God. A nation particularly that is even, is even more wicked than, let's say, Babylon and Assyria. Why? Because these are the covenant people of God whom He covenanted with. And you see that language in Leviticus chapter 26. You see that language in Deuteronomy chapter number 28. And you can almost find that in that covenant language, even in Luke chapter number 21, um, a quote there from, De- from Leviticus chapter 26, speaking of the vengeance of these days. And that this is God's vengeance placed upon this people because of their covenant disobedience. In, in, and He will carry out that judgment in such a way that He will demolish the nation of Israel, he will uh, particularly destroy the old covenant by abolishing the temple. Um, and, and those abominations will subsequently 
Cease. In the establishment of the new covenant, the old covenant is passing away. God in some way formalizes it in A.D. 70 at the destruction of the temple, thus um, ceasing sacrifices forever. And I think that that's a, a, um, a fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel chapter number 9, I think verse number um, 27. It all hinges, that, that interpretation though, it all hinges on this verse in, um, in, in verse number 34, this generation. Again, there's different views of what this generation is. Quickly, let me give you a few. That in, in days past, interpreters have understood this phrase, this generation, to mean and speak of a race, a race of people. They argue that this generation is actually the generation of Israel. That Israel that these things will not happen and take place um, as long as Israel exists. Uh, for example, you may say, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation or the nation of Israel will by no means pass away until all these things take place. The problem with that position is, is that this word here, generation, is not used in that way in the New Testament. That there is a word for race in the New Testament Greek, and that it's actually used in the New Testament and had our Lord desired to utilize that word race, um, He could have utilized that word and been very clear. Thus, the, play, the, the position is just a case of special pleading, um, arguing that words mean things which uh, they're not really used for. Number two, um, some argue that this generation refers to a type or a kind of generation, a wicked generation. Um, some scholars or Christians throughout the ages have looked at this and they said historically it looks like it means that generation. Um, or the generation at hand. But we know that these things are future, so what do we, what do, we do with that? Some of people look at it like it's not talking about a historical generation, but a type of people. A wicked generation. That would be akin to the generation of Noah, or the generation of the wilderness, or the generation um, that is even there at hand. And that these things will by no means pass away until this generation... Um, uh, that this generation, this wicked, there'll be a certain type of generation that will be present at the end of the age. And, uh, but again, that's somewhat of a type of special um, pleading. Number three, the most popular today is that the generation that sees these signs will not pass away. To the argument that MacArthur would take, for example, a faithful man, I would argue that um, there's a, there'll be a generation that is alive. And when they see these signs, that that generation will not pass away um, until all these things um, will be fulfilled. And I think that's a tenable position. That's a position I, I used to take. Um, but as I begin to study, I, I think that there's a position that seems um, seems more appropriate. That the generation in which he's speaking about is actually that generation. That a question that we need to ask is what would the disciples have actually understood would they have understood it as some remote generation in the future? And I don't believe that they would have understood it, particularly because of the, the pronoun this. It's, it's distinct not only in English, but it's distinct in, in their language as well, whether Aramaic or, or Greek. In other words, had he desired to communicate the idea of a generation in the future, he very easily could have said the generation or that generation. The generation that is alive at that time um, will be the generation that sees these signs and when and they will not pass away until all these things um, become fulfilled. But he doesn't say that. He, and, and clearly he uses those demonstrative and definite pronouns in this passage to speak of that day or, or definitively this thing. 
um, that he could have spoken a different way. It would be very confusing to the disciples as well as us today if he meant a further generation, a remote generation, um, by using the phrase this generation. It would be similar to, to me saying this pulpit is corrupt. You know, what do I mean by that? And you ask me later, how is this pulpit corrupt? And I said, you, I wasn't talking about this pulpit. I was talking about the pulpit in America. You know, I would have said that pulpit or the pulpit of America, not necessarily this. It's just it would be simply confusing to the disciples. It would be confusing to us. And it has been confusing to, to people throughout the ages. And they've had to do something to to reconcile um, the apocalyptic type language with this particular phrase. And I think after you study the book of Matthew and you study the Old Testament and you see the context in this book as well as the context of the entirety of the Old Testament and what is coming, that, that it is clear that this generation is speaking about that generation that existed during the time of, of, of Christ. I might be more um, amenable or more in a line. I may, I may take the other positions. If it wasn't for... The reality that this phrase is used throughout the book of Matthew. Um, that this is not the only... So if, it only, if this phrase only came up in Matthew 24, um, I might be more prone to take another position. But this phrase shows up throughout the book of Matthew um, at least six times. And the term generation is up in the teens. And every single time that the term generation is used, it's used of a generation, not a race. It's used to speak of a generation that was alive or is alive. And every time, other time that this phrase is used in Matthew, um, this generation, um, people who believe even this passage is future, um, all agree that every other time this portion of Scripture is used, or uh, this phrase is used in Matthew, um, it speaks of that generation. But not only that, the context of Matthew um, I think is arguably supporting the um, interpretation of this generation. For example, Matthew chapter 3, you don't necessarily need to turn there, but you see that the, the, the gospel of the kingdom begins with a particular person who? Malachi um, prophesies of a man that would come and be a forerunner for the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus um, reinterprets or interprets that portion of Scripture and identifies that man as John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter number 3, he comes out swinging with the sermon against the nation of Israel. He's calling Israel to repentance, saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. In it, he scathingly rebukes the religious leaders, calling them a brood of vipers. Despite their claim, we're the children of Abraham. John sees them coming for baptism and says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And you could ask what wrath? Final judgment or the second return of Christ? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe John is saying when he says in Matthew chapter 3 that the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. That every, every, three, therefore, every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It very well may be that he's talking about um, the old covenant dispensation and the nation of Israel. That the axe is already laid at the root. The kingdom of heaven is already at hand. His winnowing fork is in his hand already, it says in Matthew chapter 3 and verse number 12. You move to Matthew chapter 8 and you see there that the Gentiles' faith is greater than the faith that is found in the nation of Israel. You find in uh, Matthew chapter number 11, um, one of those occurrences of, of this phrase 
um, this generation. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse number 16, um, you read this account. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like the children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. And then he began to rebuke the cities in, in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and, Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if, uh, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, if it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That he's speaking to them and he says, this wicked generation, which one? The one that saw John the Baptist, the one that saw Jesus, the one that rejected the gospel. The one, he says, for this nation, it will be, um, it will be worse for you than that nation than this nation. The judgment that's coming, I, I perceive, is the nation against the nation or the, the judgment against the nation of Israel. He goes on and he says similar things in uh, Matthew chapter number twelve. He says similar things in Matthew chapter thirteen. Um, and he carries on. You get to um, Matthew chapter number twenty one and he begins a, a discourse of multiple parables. I'm speaking of the destruction or the, the judgment that's going to come upon the nation of Israel. He begins in uh, chapter 21 speaking of a fig tree. And you remember that. We went through that in the book of Mark and he, and, he, and he destroys the fig tree. It's the only miracle that seems to be deconstructive in nature or harmful. And he comes and he desires fruit to be barren upon this. And it's an illustration to the disciples. And he says, and he says that it did not bear fruit. Thus he, he strikes it down and he says it will never bear fruit again. And this is in the context of him going in and out of the temple and walking into the temple and seeing the religious activity um, within it. And they're, and they're, they're, de they're, they're, they're greedy, they're, they're, they're thieves. And they turn the, the ho God's house of prayer, His house, into a den of thieves. They're robbing from the widows. And they're turning um, the, the place in which God was supposed to dwell into a den of thieves, a, greed, a greedy pot of, of sinfulness. And it's in that, that that he strikes it down. In another parable in the book of Luke, he says in a similar way that there was a fig tree that did not bear fruit and he gave it more time and when it would not bear fruit, um, he destroyed it. Chapter 21 and verse 3, uh, 21 and verse 8, he begins with a parable of the sons in which he pronounces judgment upon that people. In 21 verse 33, he begins another parable of the wine dressers. In verse 34, it says the landowner who is God uh, sent servants or prophets to the vine dressers, which is Israel. And that's the, the, Jesus explains it later exactly what he's talking about. And he sends the vine dressers to get fruit. Verse 35 says, the vine dressers took the servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So what does the landowner do? He sends other servants. What did they do? They did likewise to them. Verse 37, last of all, he sent, the landowner sent his own son to them, saying, they surely will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, he says, What will he do to those vine dressers? That's the question he asks. 
What's he going to do to those who killed his son and killed the other vine dressers? They said to him, this is, their, this is their answer to him. He asked them, what should a man do to those vine dressers? This is what they said to him. He will destroy those wicked men, miserable, and lease his vineyard to, another vine, to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read the Scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Such strong words by our Lord, and even their own conclusion, that this is what should happen and that this is what would happen. Who's he speaking about? We don't have to speculate. Chapter 21 and verse 45 says, Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, or these parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But they sought to lay hands on him. They feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. He gives another account in 22 and verse number 1 of the wedding feast. Same idea. Um, that these people are invited and they would not come, and it ends in judgment. Then you get over to Matthew chapter number 23 after the temple. He's in the temple in his last discourse. He pronounces seven woes against the nation of Israel. Why? Because of their hypocrisy. They're accused particularly in verse number 21. What woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. And this is what they're saying. They're saying that, that, that they're honoring the death of their fathers, saying we would have never done that. That wouldn't have been us. Um, we would have done differently. Then Jesus goes on and says, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous bloodshed of the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Surely I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." that the woes that were pronounced were upon that generation. Why? Because just like in, in, in uh, Matthew 21, the, the idea of the, uh, the, the landowner sending the vine dressers to the, to the people to bear fruit, they did not bear fruit, and why, they were killed because of it. It's the same as this. He's, it, it was, it was, he was pronouncing judgment against um, the nation of Israel because they killed the prophets, the vine dressers. He, he clearly states it here. But why will judgment come? Because you... Act like you honor the prophets, but you're hypocrites. And the reality is, is that you will too kill the prophets. And we find later in the book of Matthew that that's exactly what they do all throughout the book of Acts. What do you find? You find the nation of Israel murdering the prophets. You find them take upon themselves as, as, as they stand before Pilate and Pilate says, um, this man is innocent. What do they say? They cry out and say, he, he washes his hands and he says, my hands are clean of this. And they say, we take his blood upon our hands, not only us, but also our children. The idea is, is that they took upon them the accountability for the death of Christ. They murdered the Son of God. They murdered the Son, the landowner, the son of the landowner. And they took upon themselves the accountability of, the, of the, the murder of the Son of God as well as the prophets. 
And Jesus pronounces judgment because of that upon this generation. The book of Matthew is replete. Hostility is growing between Christ and the Jews. And it has been growing for centuries. And in their hypocrisy, they will murder the Son of God and judgment will come upon them within that generation. It's the exact same phrase. Then that He goes on, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I would have gathered, gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. What house? The same house he just referenced in that, 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 that seven woes sermon. And, and previously, he just, he's standing in the temple. He refers to the temple. Um, surely, context determines that, that he's speaking about the desolation of the temple. And Leviticus chapter 26 says at the breaking of the covenant, the, the nations will come in, they will seize you, and they will destroy and leave you desolate. The idea here is is that that the temple will be destroyed. That's why they ask in Matthew 24, when will these things be? Look at the temple. It's still standing. It's glorious. It's the center of Israel's activity. Um, um, Surely it won't is, I think, kind of the idea. And then Jesus says, uh, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, 24-2, that not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? The idea is, is that throughout the text of Matthew, this generation speaks of that generation and it's always in the context of coming judgment. Another one is Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 39. Well, verse 38 says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three nights to three days in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which it came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. So shall it be also with this wicked generation. And and those are three illustrations of the nation of Israel. That, 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 that greater preaching here than happened in Nineveh, and they repented. Um, greater things happened here before, uh, than happened before Solomon, yet they repented. It's like, a, it's like a demon going into a man and then going out and seven more coming in. It's the ideal of Israel. The, the, the house is all swept. It looks good. But later, um, greater, greater spirits will come in and they'll be even more wicked than what they were before. And had these things been done in Sodom or in Tyre or these other nations that were done here, um, then they would have repented, but you would not. Thus, judgment will come upon this generation. Every time that the phrase is used other than this, um, other than Matthew 24, um, it is exceptionally clear that it speaks of this generation. What I'm arguing is, is that with the context of Matthew, with the, with the prophetic word, a particular covenant language in the Old Testament, speaking of God's relationship to the nation of Israel, what would happen with obedience and disobedience? 
Um, that, that, that God is keeping covenant here with his, his old covenant people um, such that it, for centuries of hypocrisy, they will fill up the cup of their sinfulness by killing the prophets and particularly murdering the Son of God who was sent out of compassion to them. And for that reason, within this generation, um, He would destroy that wicked and perverse generation. And He would do it. As the new covenant comes in, He would totally disavow and disannul um, the old covenant, even in formalizing it the destruction of the temple, which stands in the very face of Christ um, as they offer sacrifices when that true sacrifice came. But that's what we're talking about and mean, I believe, when we speak of this generation. Thus, I think it's clear, and we interpret the, the, rest, the reality of everything prior in accordance with this generation. And I pray that I've done that in a satisfactory way. You don't have to believe it. But I would ask you to believe whatever it is that you believe because you're convinced of it by Scripture. Not simply because um, your daddy was a great guy and that's what he told you. Not simply because your pastor was a phenomenal man who loved you and had a compassionate heart and love for God. Um, Because at the end of the day, when you stand before God, and I stand before God, it won't be enough um, for us to cling to the faith of other men, and even great men. But we will have to stand before God alone and and stand upon a personal faith in which we have sought Christ and believed. And we move on. Verse number 32. And I back up to say that. Uh, I wanted to deal with that first, and then let's move on quickly. After that portion of Scripture in verses 29 through 31, um, you see that apocalyptic type language, that immediately after the tribulation of those days, um, the, sun would be, uh, you know, uh, the sun will be darkened and so forth and so on. Um, and some have taken verse 28 and said at verse 29, it's, 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 it's future. There's a great gap. It's hard to argue that there's a great gap between 28 and 29 when our Lord says immediately after those days. That it's something that will happen immediately after the tribulation of those days. That these things will happen. And then he says, he reinforces that in verse number 32 by saying, learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. What our Lord does here is He gives them an illustration, a natural illustration of life and something they would understand, um, saying that when you see these things happen, know that the end is near even at the... that these events that are prophesied are right at the door. It's reinforcing um, the idea that these things will shortly take place. It will happen in this generation, that there is a specific time space in which these things must happen. And when you see the idea is that that I'm, I'm preparing you for that, when you see these things, know that it is nigh even at the door, just like you would know that in summer... As the leaves are, as the, as, the, as the plant is tender and the leaves go forth, you know that fruit is about to pop. Um, and there may also be somewhat of an insinuation here of, of a productive time. And I know that's hard to believe with the Great Tribulation. But what you're going to find throughout history, and particularly during this time, is whether or not you, know, you believe that this text deals with that period of time, that period of time was an extremely fruitful time for the Lord. Not only in the judgment of the nation of Israel, which seems very traumatic 
Um, and it is in a time that the world has never seen before. But at the same time, what you find is that under the persecution of Nero, Rome, and other nations, that the gospel did go forth and it went forth to the nations. That, you know, people, um, I've, I used to believe this, and people, I find it somewhat strange today as we talk about things waxing worse and worse. And I know that there will always be a remnant. Um, but people are so pessimistic concerning the church, such that they believe that it will almost just be totally um, evaporated or distinguished, extinguished um, prior to the second coming of Christ. And that may be true. But at the same time, you look out through history, what you find is that it's in those times of great persecution that the church is made. You know, it's like during that time we flourish. Like we look around and we see persecution coming forth and, and we worry and there's anxiety that builds up and we think, man, what are we going to do? I mean, is the Lord at work? Is, you know, let's find a hole and hide in it so that we can self-preserve and, 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 and various other things. And time and time again, our Lord says, no, that this is the, you know, that, that you are to be faithful. You are to labor. You're not of the world, but you are to be in the world. And if you're removed from the world, how can you influence the world? And that you are to be a light in a city that's set upon a hill and, and that, that, that true faith is often refined and even born in times like this. You know, that this is the time in which Christianity flourishes. You see it in prior to 70 AD under Nero at a time in which nation is coming against the church and nation after nation throughout the ages. And while there have been times of darkness and remnants, no doubt, um, oftentimes in persecution and under pressure, it is, that is, those are the times in which, in which the church thrives. And over the last century, China has been under, or, uh, the church in China has been under a communist regime in which many of them meet in, in uh, secluded locations and, and in caves and in places in which they can't report. And I think it was, you know, uh, less than a century ago that the church was, you know, 100,000 or less deep in the nation of, in a communist nation, and today it's in the millions, you know? That it is in times of pressure, the Scriptures teach us, that you purify the church, that, that yes, there are those that defect from the faith, but they go out from us because they were not of us. It is in times like these, in the midst of persecution, that God shows Himself forth um, in refining those that are is and emboldening their faith. And when people see that faith, they shine forth like a light to a lost and a dying world. And, and droves come in. This is when revival often happens. This is when the church flourishes. And it could very well be also an indication here to speak of summer. The only time that this word is used in um, the New Testament, it is in this portion of Scripture in all three discourses. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the one that Jesus and the disciples would have no doubt studied and read from, oftentimes summer is used to speak of a time of productivity. That in the midst of judgment, we must remember this, the Old Testament prophesies, and many of the prophets declare that when the Son of Man would come, when Christ would come in His first advent, that He would not only bring salvation, but He would bring judgment. He would not only bring judgment, but He would also bring salvation. And that even in that, 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 that the presence of persecution does not inherently mean that the church is losing. You know, it, it, it is a time of refinement and progress and pushing forward. Even in the book of Acts, you'll find out that the Great Commission was not um, even remotely 
um, going to be completed until Acts chapter 8, I believe it is, in which um, persecution comes against the disciples there in, in, in Jerusalem and they are dispersed. That this is often times in which God manifests Himself and His power showing forth in the faithfulness of the church that oftentimes in the midst of suffering and persecution, it will be some of the most productive times in history. And while we don't welcome it, um, the pain and suffering for Christians, at the same time, we recognize that God has a purpose in it and that His purposes are greater than ours. And thus, we follow His admonition in chapter 24 in the first portion, not to worry, not to fear, but to be steadfast and to persevere. Um, why? Because we know that He is faithful. Thus, let us be faithful. And what He does is that He, he, he argues for a... Um, he's, he's preparing the disciples. He's preparing the church there um, to, to know and to understand that when these things come, uh, that when you see these things, know that it is coming and possibly even know Trust in the Lord that summer is near and that the salvation that He promised as well is nigh at the door, even in the midst and through judgment. Verse number 35, and this is a, this is a, a staunch statement. He says, uh, verse 34, Assuredly I say to you, that's a double positive. Assuredly, and I say to you, I'm, say, I'm telling you something. Now, as if he wasn't already telling them something. He says, and now I really want you to perk up. But not only that, assuredly I say to you, it's a double positive, followed by a double negative. I mean, by well, no means, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a double negative, an emphatic that this is, this is going, know that, that when I say this, this is going to happen, that this generation will by no means pass away. Double positive followed by double negative, and if that wasn't enough, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but guess what? This won't. And there's this just emphatic statement that I need you to know this. You must be, why? Because those phrases are often used even in our, in our vernacular, right? Like you, it's debatable whether you should use this phrase or not, but, but some people will say, I swear. You know? Um, you know, and it's generally in correlation with something that somebody won't believe. It's like saying, you won't believe this, but I'm going to tell you something you should believe. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I know that you're going to doubt this. Therefore, Dub, I need you to believe. You must believe this. If that wasn't enough, look at the world. It's going to pass away. My words will not pass away. Um, my words will not pass away. And the same with us. You know, Some of us, we're even doubting the text. Um, and I have to say, I know you may not believe this, but believe this. And... Um, and I believe our Lord honored His words that it did happen in that generation. Um, and He kept the Christians even in the midst of persecution. The church flourished. Summer came. And, um, and God blessed. And I know I should probably end the sermon there, but I'll give you one more thing as we're still a little earlier than usual. Maybe later for you, but early for us. Because uh, I want to wrap this up today. Verse number 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days of Noah, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be shaken or be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the meal. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, 
that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. There's some debate from my position on this passage of whether or not the judgment at Israel of Israel continues on through the end of Matthew 24 and 25. Um, there's an argument that it doesn't, that in chapter number 24 and verse 36, that it changes actually to that day, speaking of the day of the second coming of Christ. And I've waffled back and forth, to be honest with you. But I want to give you this morning, I think both are faithful expositions of the text, but I want to give you this morning very quickly um, my understanding of uh, what this passage is saying. That I do believe that this is a transition text in the in the book of Matthew chapter 24. I believe that as the questions are asked there in Matthew chapter 24, that the understanding of the disciples was probably an asking one question. There's three questions there. Um, I think they're probably asking one question. I think in their mind at the temple being destroyed, it would have been the end of the world. Thus they ask what and when. Or when will these things be and what will be the sign? I think it's actually just two questions. The last two are the same question describing um, the same event. So when he says, um, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age, if those two are together, that he's actually asking, that they're asking probably one question though. But there's really two questions there, the what and the when, or the when and the what. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And while they thought in their minds that it was all this, because I think they would have, um, I think that they would have, uh, if somebody asked me a couple weeks ago, do you think that he's talking about, that they're asking about the second coming? I don't think they are. I don't think they had in their end times paradigm a second coming. They didn't even believe that, the, that Jesus was going to die. They believed that Messiah would come and he would establish his rule and reign. He would ruin Rome um, and he would just rule and reign from David's throne. And there, this is what the disciples thought. And we know that because oftentimes that's what Jesus says. He teaches them clearly about his death and Peter opposes him. And then he says that they won't understand it and won't understand it until after Christ is glorified. So don't believe that he's asking about a second coming, but the end of the world, the time-space continuum in which they would have um, correlated that with the destruction of the temple. Why? Because Israel, uh, Israel's activity was, was all centered around um, Jerusalem and the, and the temple. Um, that it was actually, many Jews believed that it was the center of the world, Jerusalem. And the temple activity was the very dwelling place of God. Thus, everything rotated and revolved around it. Their life was the temple. And I believe uh, you know, from Jewish writings as well as from Old Testament and here, that they would have, uh, they would have assumed that all three of these questions, that, that they were all together. At the same time, I believe that our Lord can distinguish between the two questions in His answer. And that's I think that's what He does. I think that He takes the two questions and it's somewhat saying, you know, uh, when will these things be? This is when these things will be. And then in verse 36, He says that this will be the sign of My coming and the end of the age. And you know what the sign is? Um, there's not one. I think that's the point. That what you see from this portion on, it seems like a totally different day. Um, it seems like, let me give you a few reasons, okay? Why do I think that this is a departure from the first question? Number one, it seems that the grammar would argue that. Um, there's an argument of transition. Matthew 24, 36, you see that, that, that transition, but... 
B-U-T, but of that day and hour, no one knows. The introductory phrase here is, is in, that, that is in the original is actually used throughout the New Testament um, in, a, in, a, in a whole host of ways. And there's a number of times in which it's used to totally change the subject. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 25, verse, uh, verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1, you see, now concerning the things, now concerning the virgins, now concerning the things sacrificed to idols, now concerning the spiritual gifts, that you see Paul redirecting the subject over and over again, and he uses this very same phrase that could be translated here, not just but, but now concerning that day. Um, he could have been correcting the thinking. So yes, they were misguided in their questions, but corrected their thinking concerning what the end of the world would be because that's really um, their ultimate question as they um, conflate the two events. He's saying, no, the two events are different. And that when will these things be? This is when these things will be in the sign of those things. And when, but, but that day is a different day in which no signs will accompany it. And that if these are the same days, um, then it seems strange that he would say prepare for that day, but then come here like in, and say in the days of Noah, um, that that day will be like in the days of Noah in which things will just be happening normally. You read through the War of the Jews and what you find is that during the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, it was a five-month-long raid, a three-and-a-half-year war in which um, there was no normal activity going on. Um, they weren't eating and they weren't drinking and they weren't marrying. You know, When you read the War of uh, the Jews in Josephus' account, you don't read of any weddings going on. You don't read of natural activity. You don't read of uh, things of that nature. What you read is one of the most gruesome accounts um, throughout church history and uh, throughout world history of the death of uh, Jews among, them own, among their own selves as well as, as Rome comes in. That what you find in these, this parable and in the parables that follow through Matthew chapter 25 um, is over and over again um, this, this earnest exhortation from Christ to the people of God um, to be ready for that day um, in which they will not be able to prepare for. Whereas in the first portion of the text, this, the verse 35 through verse 35, he says that this is clearly when it's coming. Therefore, prepare. Um, so it seems to me to be a different day. Not only that, number two, not only the, the, the transition phrase, but number two, and grammatically, it seems like 34 is a concluding statement. You know, I, I don't usually do this, but I've heard preachers do this. It would be like 15 minutes in in my hour and 15-minute sermon um, to say, in conclusion, and then carry on for you know, the last three-fourths of the sermon. I, don't, I try not to lie to you like that. Um, but that would be, it seems like he is wrapping things up and thus transitions even um, from 35 to um, verse 36. Not only there's an argument from the words that he uses, the term coming here um, um, that's used later in the, in the second portion of the discourse is not the term that's used for coming in the first portion. And I argued with you that, uh, or for you, that, that the term, that the only time that this term is used speaking, is actually speaking of the second coming in verse number 27. That he contrasts that day with the end of the age in which um, lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will also the coming of the Son of Man be. That that's the same term that's used later in this portion of the text, um, speaking of that day. And that's another discrepancy. That the first portion of this text speaks of those days, plural. 
Um, but there is a distinct change in the, in the, in the language here of speak. So again, a far demonstrative pronoun. Not this day, or th- but that day. Um, it seems like a day that is farther um, out. Not only that, um, yeah, and it also moves from plural days to a singular day. That those days are like this, but that day will be like that. Not only that, but the first half or portion of the discourse speaks of um, one, would, one would say temporal duration in the early section. Um, that, that what you see is uh, phrases like um, "it's coming," it's it's it, it's the idea of it's nigh, it's coming quickly, it's it's within this generation. In the la- in, in in the rest of the text, what you find is that there's actually times of delay. Uh, chapter twenty um, five twenty four and verse forty eight, my master is delaying his coming. Uh, chapter 25, verse 5, but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Uh, verse, chapter 25, verse 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And not only that, but in, he also says something quickly uh, during that portion as well. That, that There seems to be, it could be now or it could be later. Um, not like the first portion when it is imminently coming, the judgment upon them. Um, not only that, but... Um, uh, there's an argument from uh, observing the signs. Again, the wars and the rumors of wars, the famines and the earthquakes, the, the false prophets in, in the latter portion of the text. It seems like there will be none of that. Um, there's an argument from deception, right? Um, be not afraid in the first portion. Don't worry when you see these things. In the, in the latter portion, you won't even have the opportunity to worry because it's coming when you don't know. Um, not only that, there's um, an argument from flight opportunity. In the first portion, when you see these things run, in this portion, there will be no opportunity to run. Um, there's, an ar- there's, a, there's an argument from just social contrasts. Um, it seems like most of the things that's happening in the first portion is local to Jerusalem. Um, in the latter portion, it's speaking of the nations. Uh, chapter 25, verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before Him. There's an argument from the humiliation of Christ and His limitations. He says, I don't know what that day is. Um, but, but He seems to clearly know when the previous day will be. He says He knows when it's coming. Um, and some will argue that, that you can predict the year, you can predict the month, you can predict the week, you can predict the beginning or ending of the week, but not the day and the hour. And it seems to me that that's not the point. The point seems to me to be that not only the day and hour, which is, which is used here and used time and time again in the parables uh, that are to come, but the, the day and the hour, the time and the season will be a season in which no one will expect to return. It will be as in the days of Noah. You know, many people look at that and they think, uh, uh, they think the Nephilim are coming. And when we see the Nephilim, you know, because in the days of Noah that... Um, that um, you know, then we can expect the coming of Christ. Or when there's a wickedness, like in the days of Noah, that is just unparalleled, that's not the point of the passage. The, the point of the passage is, is that people will be carrying on with normal activity. People will be eating, people will be drinking, people will be marrying until then, is what he says. Right up until Noah entered the ark, the text says. When you read, the his, again, the historian Josephus' account of the destruction of Jerusalem and the judgment that would come upon Israel, you find none of that. 
You read of famine, you read of starvation, you read of bloodshed, you read of war, you read of last days, you read of uh, uh, the, the last days, the weeks, the months in which there is peril that is unparalleled, infighting, poisoning of a whale, starvation, infant cannibalism, barbarians that were grotesque. In one night, uh, the, the Idumeans, um, a former, a, a, an outlying group came in and killed 2,000 Jewish people um, simply because they were looking for gold in their bellies. Um, blood filled the streets and the temple floors. And as the temple was finally being seized with barbarianism um, that, that was unparalleled by the Romans, they could not restrain themselves and brought it to the ground. Every stone uh, moved from on the other. Jesus seems to be saying in the rest of the portion of Scripture, um, in this passage of Scripture, that there is coming a time which you cannot prepare for. There is coming a day in which you need to be faithful. You need to be on guard. You need to be honorable. You need to be good stewards. You need to be carrying yourself well. Um, that, that, that when He comes, He can say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That you've been given much. That the talents have came and you're to use those and utilize those. And that you are to live in light of Christ's coming, but, but you don't know when that'll be, and neither did our Lord in His limitations, in His, in His, in His humanity. In AD 70, He expected His followers to recognize what was coming and to flee. But here there is no chance of fleeing our Lord. There will not be unprecedented global catastrophes, it seems, or unparalleled calamities according to these parables that will point to the impending return of Jesus. You know, you shouldn't get on um, on the uh, the rapture site. To, uh, there's a rapture index that looks around at the world and measures what's going on and the likelihood of our day of our of our Lord's coming, and to see if they can narrow down what the day is. Jesus says, avoid that. Avoid those false messiahs. Avoid those uh, false prophets. You know, somebody at the beginning of this uh, the series asked me, I was I was waiting. They said I was waiting for you to tell me when the day would be. Listen, if I ever do that, you go ahead and just. Remove me. Um, because that's exactly what our Lord is arguing against. He seems like, like there is a day that was coming in which they were to prepare for and which was definite and near at hand. And here it seems like a total contrast of a day in which no man can prepare for with the exception of preparing for it with longevity, with consistency, with commitment, with resolve, and with day-to-day faithfulness. That you are to live as if God is with us now, not as if, not only as if He is coming. That you and I are to seek to be faithful. That when He comes, we are found faithful. That the emphasis on the verses is not to identify the day or the hour in which Christ comes so that we can clean ourselves up, but to have a readiness in our hearts all the time to be ready in season and out of season. To be walking is not to be worried. To be, not to be anxious, not to be fearful, but to have a life constituted by faithfulness, which is part of the reason that I preached the sermon that I did last week. To provoke us as men, to provoke us as women, to provoke us as little boys and little girls, to be consistent, to be moderate, to be faithful men, faithful women, understanding our responsibility here and now. We are not to be like children who are given a task at home. And they know that mommy and daddy will be away for a while, thus they play. And they know when He's coming, thus they know five minutes before to clean the room. It is to recognize the authority and the obligation and the privilege it is to have a father or a mother and to obey them in the Lord and to, and to handle the task at hand now with being good stewards consistently and as soon as possible. All right, many Christians, maybe us as well, live this life knowing that we have a gracious Savior 
But at the same time, realizing that He's not coming now or He will come later, thus we can live as we desire now. If that's the case, um, we will not be found faithful. That we are to live now. Not with anxiety, not with worry, not with anxiousness because of what's going on within the world without faith. We are to live in anticipation of our Lord's return which provokes a watchful spirit over our souls such that we guard them with resolve and consistency. Why? Because He's coming. And in some sense, if He is, if he is a Savior of your soul and you've, you've by faith come to Him and you have a new heart, then He is not only God on that day, He is God on this day. And His presence may come in a greater reality on that day, but the reality is, is that we are temples of God and He is present with us this day. And that's one of the greatest needs of our time and within our churches and within our homes is for us to recognize the very glory and presence of God now. To feel His presence, to understand His holiness, that it might drive us to respect and to a privilege of service, to sacrifice, to selflessness, to dying to self, to sacrificing to Him, to living to Christ, to laying up treasures there and not here, to pursuing one another, to being faithful, to being consistent, to being good stewards, day-to-day faithfulness. That's what you see here emphasized in this text. It's not so much the glory of a great battle that is to come. It is to live consistently as, as honorable men with character, carrying what many would, would believe today is to be mundane life but recognizing that this day is the Lord's day and He deserves it as much as every other day. That He will not be God on that day any more than He is God on this day. And that today we are to serve Him with all that we have. And we are to recognize that it is not only in the great things that we seemingly do explicitly um, that will even matter that much on that day. I think that there will be very little Let me just be honest with you. I think there will be very little treasures laid up in heaven um, for what the world esteems even within Christianity as great things. Because most men by our selfish nature on many days, even when we serve God in a glorious way, do it to take the glory from God. I think that there will be probably greater men and greater women in heaven that we thought were least in the kingdom of heaven here simply because they carried on with faithfulness in light of that day. I think that that's part of the... You get to Matthew chapter 25 and you read of the talents and and, and He gives according to each His own ability. And they're not to be greater than what they are. They're to be um, faithful in what God gave them. Whether it's five talents or three talents or one talent. Um... And you find the one wicked servant doesn't because he doesn't understand who God is and he hides it. And he doesn't actually, he's not faithful with what was given to him. Um, but then after that, you find whenever he judges the nations, um, he's going to come and this is, this is going to be part of his judgment. He's going to look at the works and he's going to say things like in Matthew chapter 25, uh, verse 34, when the king will, uh, then, then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we do these things? When did we feed you? because we didn't and he says when you see a stranger you take them in or you're naked and clothe you or when you do uh, or when did you see that me when do we see you sick or in prison or come to you and the king will answer and say to them surely i say to you inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren you did it to me 
And then he'll say to the wicked, um, exactly the opposite. That you did not care for one another, that you did not feed the sick, that you did not give to the poor, that you did not live to the glory of God. But it seems to me that when you understand Christ and all of his glory and coming on that day, but not only that day, but this day, um, living in the very presence of God, that it, that it changes every day. And it makes this day more valuable than you'll ever, than you'll ever understand. And it makes even the most meaning, seemingly meaningless and mundane acts things that will reign in eternity for all the ages. That there are treasures that are laid up in heaven simply because someone gave or someone sacrificed or someone did something that, that you never saw and you never will. The right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing and it seemed meaningless and it seemed menial. And it seems like, like having a good understanding, a faithful understanding of who God is and what's required of us and um, it, it adds to it adds value and worth to every single action. Thus, it, it adds weight to that phrase: whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's why we're here. And I say that to say this, because I know you, and I know me who want the glory and want the pomp and want the circumstance and want the accolades and want the treasures and want the trophies and want the amens and want this and that. And we live long enough and don't get those. We wonder what we're doing anyway. Because we read about great men and great women of old who, who we still talk about and we think, man, we want to be like a Luther. We want to be like a Calvin. We want to be like a, an Athanasius. We want to be like this. We want to do something. I think it's, I think it's, a, it's a natural tendency that's maybe even um, God breathed and born into us by nature. Like we want to do something that's worth something. The danger of that is, is thinking that the only thing that's worth something are the things that people remember. Or the things that seem glorious or, or great or, or, or grandeur. The thing that the ages will always remember, forgetting that, 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 that true faithfulness and the mundane activities are the things that will reign throughout heaven for all the ages. Those are the things that your children will remember. Those are the things when you should have abandoned, you didn't. Those are the things when you gave and you didn't have. And those are the things, you know, those days in which you trust the Lord when there's no reason to. And um, like those seem to be things that, um, things that really matter. So I want to encourage you men and I want to encourage you women and I want to encourage you little ones. As little as you think you may seem, um, as little ones and as little and, 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 and insignificant that you may think you are within this church and within humanity, God has given you more than you deserve. And He expects from you something in return. And what He expects from you in return is simply faithfulness, not grandeur, not pomp and not circumstance. And at the end of the age, or when we stand before Him face to face, those are the things that you will be greatly judged upon. And those are the things that I think will make up even the greatest in the kingdom of, of heaven. Because I think some of you struggle with that. Struggle with simply being a father. Struggle with simply being a mother. Thinking, what am I doing today? And, and what does it all matter? I work in a factory. I work in a hospital. I, it seems to me that it's a little work. It's never a little work when God's ordained it. That even the most insignificant things become the most monumental things. Not only there, but here. As you seek to be faithful. 
Part of the issue is, is that we don't know what's required of us. Many people ask, you know, what can I do in the church? The first question I'll ask is, what are you doing at home? You want to be more used and you want to be more significant, but the reality is, is that if we're not faithful in the things that were required of us as a father and as a mother and as this and as that, um, um, then the reality is we just want glory. We want to feel like we're doing something. We want to feel like we mean something. We want to feel like we've done. So we think that activity within the church will, will, um, will fill that gap, and it won't. It won't. I'm telling you, I, 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 some of the greatest men I think will sit before, and women that will sit before will not be remembered in this world. They will not do much of anything that will be remembered for all of the grandeur. But they are remembered by God because they remembered God in all of their activity, thus doing it all to the glory. Thus it makes waking up and lying down, it makes feeding your children, it makes changing diapers, it makes you know, um, loving your husband, loving your wife, it makes just being faithful at home, men. Um, something to pursue. Be faithful. Before you ever ask me, what can I do in the church? Ask yourself this question first. Am I faithful at home? Um, am I serving in some capacity? Um, because this will not feel anything remotely um, that faithfulness will feel. That faithfulness will feel. And I know that that's a lot. But we're done. <laughs> and we will move on. I say all that to say this, that I think it's speaking of two days. I think this generation speaks of that generation. And it's a microcosmic display of the great judgment that will come on another great day at the end of the age. Thus we should shy in terror. But at the same time, for God's people, we recognize that God not only comes in judgment, but also salvation, and He will secure um, the salvation of His people. Um, and that even though these things took place in the past, we know that there's a day coming in which God requires of us um, faithfulness. Are you faithful in the things that God has given you to do? If so, then you are living your best life now. And really, that's the only life you should live. And you shouldn't live day to day trying to live someone else's life who has five talents when you only have three. Trust God with the three that you've got and invest them with vigor and zeal and the utmost joy because you recognize outside of Christ that's three talents you never deserved anyway. So do it. Do it to the glory of God. That when God sees you that day face to face, He will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That that should be our aim. That should be our goal. That should be our purpose. Not to satisfy the flesh, nor our brothers and sisters in Christ, nor the world, but Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glory of Christ. We thank you for the privilege it is just to proclaim your word and to declare it to the people. Father, we thank you for the privilege it has been just that you would even declare truth to me. What a joy it is, Father, to know you. And to know you is eternal life. Father, would you take that word that we've even read today. Father, I pray that it was a faithful uh, exposition. Father, I pray that it was honorable to you. Um, and I pray, Lord, that you would even take it not only in the depths of my heart, but in the hearts of the people. 
And you would utilize it maybe even ways that I did not. That the great Spirit of God would stand forth, stand up, and speak to us in eternal ways to show us, Father, our value and our worth in Christ. That our identity is found in Him. Thus, our activity should as well. That our lives should be totally governed by the gracious work and attitude and character of a mighty God. And that one day, Father, we will see you. And what a glorious day that will be. Father, help us by your power and spirit and word to be found faithful. Give us more moderate, consistent men and women who don't desire the glory of Christ in the sense to remove it from them or to take it. They simply desire the glory of Christ to be exalted in every day of life and every activity, thus being satisfied with knowing Him and recognizing that the grace that we have is grace undeserved and unmerited and un, and um, unfavored. That, Lord, we have found favor and we don't know why. Help us to glory in that and to recognize that whatever capacity You've called us um, is, is the life worth living. Not only to live, Father, give us joy and zeal and the privilege it is to know the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the Savior of all the earth. Father, we love you, we thank you, and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.